0: I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the Book of Luke, The Book of Luke, if you're not sure where that is, you can see the page printed for you, page number printed for you and the bulletin for the passage and the red Bibles and the chairs around you. We're going to be looking at chapter fourteen today as we continue in our study of the parables this summer. Uh, We're looking today at what is referred to as the parable of the great banquet. You'll find that beginning in verse 12 and going down through verse 24. I'm going to begin by reading verse 1 of chapter 14 and then we'll skip down to verse 12 and read the rest of the passage. One Sabbath, when he, that's Jesus, went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. Verse 12. He said also to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind." And you will be blessed, because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became, became angry and said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, sir, what you, what you commanded has been done and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for giving it to us. We pray that the same Holy Spirit that helped Luke to record these stories would be present with us here right now. Opening our eyes and our hearts that we might see what you want us to see and learn what we need to learn and help us, Father, as a result, to love you and to love our Savior even better. We ask this in his name. Amen. Well, sometimes the most powerful way of telling someone what they've done is wrong or bringing them to a a sense of conviction of their wrongdoing, is to tell them a story. And to make the story about them and what they've done, but telling it in such a way as that they don't know that. And then at the end of the story, you reveal that they're actually the ones who have done what was in the story. Drawing them into that story, making them emotionally get connected to the story, and then bringing the end Into their knowledge. Well, lots of stories like that in the Old Testament. And probably the one that's the best known is the story about King David. He had committed adultery with Bathsheba and he lied about it. And he even had her husband killed. And the Lord sent the prophet Nathan to go meet with David. And to bring him to a sense of conviction of his sin, of his wrongdoing, what he had done. And so Nathan went to David and he began by telling him a story. He said there were two men in a certain city. One man was really rich, had lots of animals, lots of herds, lots of flocks. And one man was very poor. He had nothing except for just one little lamb. That lamb was precious to him. He, He raised it with his children. It was like a child to him. He cared for it. He carried it in his arms it was precious to him Then one day the rich man had a visitor come to stay with him and so rather than taking one of his many animals to offer as a meal for this visitor the rich man took the one lamb of the poor man and used that as a sacrifice for his guests to eat And the text tells us that when Nathan got done telling the story, David was incredibly angry. Then he said, whoever that rich man is should have to pay back fourfold what he has done. And then he deserves to die. And Nathan knew at that moment he had him. And so he looked him in the eyes and he said, David, you are the man. We're told that David was cut to the heart. That he confessed and repented. It's a powerful way of showing people their wrongdoing, their sin, of bringing them to a sense of conviction, of helping them to respond rightly. And Jesus would often use a very similar approach in his ministry. We call them parables. A made up story to teach people and to bring them to a sense of conviction of their wrongdoing. To help them to see the right way that they are supposed to respond to the truth of God's Word. And the parable that we look at today, Jesus was doing something very similar. First, for the people who heard it, but also for us as well. So let's look and see, first of all, what the parable says and means, and then secondly, how we should rightly respond to it. So, first of all, what does the parable say and mean? In order to really feel the weight of what Jesus is doing here in this parable, we have to understand the context. So if we look at verse, chapter 14, verses 1 through 11, we actually see that there's some important things going on there. As chapter 14 begins, Jesus is at a house of a leader of the Pharisees, religious teachers. It was a Sabbath day. There were other guests that were at the house as well, and they were getting ready to have dinner together. Now, we're told that the Pharisees, these religious leaders of the day, scholars, if you will, they were watching Jesus very carefully. They wanted to see if he would do anything that would break the laws of the Sabbath so that they could have ammunition against him. Jesus obviously knew what was going on, and so we're told early in chapter 14 that he actually healed a man with a physical disability who was at the party. And after that, the guests began scrambling in the house to find the seats of honor around the dinner table. And so Jesus told them a parable and said that they should take the lowest place, not the highest place of honor. And then he turned to the host of the party and he told the host, you know, when you have a dinner party, you really shouldn't just invite all of your friends and your family and the the wealthy neighbors around you to come to the party. You should invite the poor And those who are disabled because they can't pay you back. And then you'll be repaid in heaven. You should help people who can't pay you back for the help that you give to them. Do you see the dignity of all who are made in the image of God and care for their needs? Now, by the time we get to verse 12 of chapter 14, Jesus had probably offended pretty much everybody that was at the dinner party. And so we read in verse 15, that one man was trying to smooth things over, trying to, uh, to, to eliminate the awkwardness of the moment where Jesus is telling all of these people things that would be offensive to them. So this man tries to say something, picking up on what Jesus had said about getting blessings in heaven. And he tries to, to make a spiritual comment. He says in verse 15, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. It's possible that the man was even thinking of uh, Isaiah 25, the passage that we read a little bit earlier in our service about the feast that's being prepared for God's people. The problem is, is that the man was making an assumption. And the assumption was this, that both he and everybody at the dinner party were going to be at the feast in the kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus used the opportunity to teach them an important truth. In order to go... To the heavenly feast, you have to respond to the invitation by faith. So he told them a story, he tells them a parable. And we see in verses 16 and 17, he tells them that a man decided that he was going to host a great banquet, a feast. And he invited many guests to attend. I want you to notice that there are actually two different invitations that happen in these verses. The first invitation was an initial one, it's in verse 16. He he sent out a note to his people that he was inviting to come to the feast. And then there's a second invitation of sorts in verse 17 when the feast is ready. And so the servant is sent out to tell them now is the time to come. The feast is ready. That was very customary in ancient culture. You would send out two invitations. Uh, The host would send out the initial invitation and if you responded yes... You were duty-bound to attend. This was the host finding out how much he should buy and how much preparation he should make. And so he would ask you, are you going to come to the party? Are you going to come to the feast? And so if you said yes, it was really important that you showed up. In fact, it was so important that in some Middle Eastern communities to say yes, I'm coming and then not show up could be a declaration of war. So as we understand that ancient custom, it makes what we read in verses eighteen through twenty all the more meaningful. We read in verse eighteen, all of the people that were invited all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field, and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. The guests had obligated themselves to go to this feast and they should have gone immediately when the servants said the feast was ready. But instead, they came up with these excuses and they are lame and empty excuses at that. The first one says, well, I bought a field and now I need to go see it. So apparently, this fellow bought property sight unseen and decided now was the time that he had to go check it out. The second excuse wasn't any better. He said, I've bought some oxen and now I need to go examine them. Again, apparently bought them sight unseen and he has to go at that very moment to go make sure that they are what he thought he was buying. One commentator I was looking at this week said, The second excuse would be like buying five used cars without seeing them, without knowing what make or model they are, how old they were, how many miles were on them, or in what condition they were in. The third excuse... Says, well, I got married, so I can't go. Now, I certainly appreciate this man's desire to spend time with his wife, but why couldn't he go to a party? Perhaps even take his wife with him to the party. These are all meant, as Jesus is telling us this story, they are meant to seem to us lame and empty excuses. These people didn't want to go to the feast, it was rude and it was offensive to the host. And so we read in verses 21 through 23 that the host responded when the servant got back and told him about what had happened. He got angry. And he came up with a new plan. And he gave that plan to his servant at the end of verse 21. He expanded the invitation list. He said, go into the streets and the alleys of the city and bring to the feast the poor the needy, the disabled. Invite those who in that culture were on the fringe of the society. And the servant says, what you've asked us to do, we've already done, and there's still room at the table. So the host actually expands the invitation even more. He says, go outside of the city. Go outside of the city gates. Go into the country and bring even the outsiders and the foreigners my house because I want my house to be full now that's how the parable ends but Jesus finished with a warning we see it in verse 24 I tell you none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet he said None of the original people who were invited would get to go and to enjoy the feast because they didn't accept the invitation. And notice what Jesus says. He says it was his banquet. My banquet, he says. And by saying that, he was making it crystal clear what this parable is about. Jesus was in a room full of Jewish religious leaders and scholars, and they knew the Old Testament well. And he was telling them that the Lord had sent out an initial invitation to Israel, his people. The Old Testament covenant promises throughout the Old Testament. And Israel had accepted that initial invitation. And now, Jesus says, the feast of the kingdom of God is prepared and ready. Jesus, the host of the banquet, had arrived. So the second invitation was sent out. The feast is ready. Come to the feast. Come to my feast, Jesus said. Come to me in faith. Israel and especially the Jewish religious leaders made all kinds of excuses for not coming to Jesus' feast. And so Jesus told them, as a result, the invitation will be greatly expanded. The poor, the disabled, outcasts, even people outside of Israel, the Gentiles, will be invited to the feast, and will fill my house. And those who initially accepted the invitation but refused to come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ would not taste Jesus' heavenly feast. There's an interesting story in uh, the, the last book of the Chronicles of Narnia, The Last Battle, toward the end of that book. It's a picture, it's a scene of when the great lion king Aslan prepared an incredible, delicious feast for a group of old, grumpy dwarfs. The dwarfs didn't believe in Aslan, and so they were suspicious of anything that he would try to do for them. They, they were so suspicious that they couldn't see or even taste how good the feast was that Aslan had provided. Now listen to what, how C.S. Lewis describes the scene. He says, Aslan raised his head and shook his mane, And instantly a glorious feast appeared on the dwarfs' knees. Pies and pigeons, trifles and ices. And each dwarf had a goblet of good wine in his right hand. But it wasn't much use. They began eating and drinking greedily enough, but it was clear that they couldn't taste it properly. They thought they were eating and drinking only the sort of things you might find in a stable. One said he was trying to eat hay, And another said he had got a bit of an old turnip. And a third said he had found a raw cabbage leaf. And they raised golden goblets of rich uh, red wine to their lips and said, Ugh, fancy drinking dirty water out of a trough that a donkey's been at. Never thought it would come to this. The dwarves finished their miserable meal and they congratulated themselves for refusing the king's royal banquet. Jesus has prepared an incredible feast for his people, but the feast is only for those who will receive it by faith. Many people like the idea of a a feast and maybe even say that they plan to go, but like the dwarfs, they refuse to enjoy the Lord's invitation. Now, none of us was at that dinner party in Luke chapter 14 when Jesus initially told this parable, and none of us, to my knowledge, are Jewish religious leaders But we're supposed to be putting ourselves into this parable. We're supposed to discern how it applies to us today. So the question for us is, how do we respond to this parable about the feast? Three things that I want to suggest to you, the ways that we should respond. The first is this. We need to come to the banquet. We need to answer the invitation and come to the feast that Jesus has provided. If you're here today or you're online with us and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, then you need to hear his invitation today and respond in faith. There is a feast that is awaiting all who put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. A feast not just of delicious food, but a feast of eternal blessings. It's a feast of which the Lord's Supper is just a foretaste. And Jesus' invitation is clear to us. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. That is wonderful news that the weight and the heaviness of our sin, of our brokenness, of our disrupted relationship with our Creator, that weight can be lifted there is rest for souls that are weary and weighed down with the power and the penalty of our sin and the brokenness of this world Jesus came into this life and lived a life of perfect love a perfect and unblemished love and obedience to his father in heaven that's the life that we were supposed to live but we never do and then he went to the cross and he died the death that we deserve to die because of our sin he took our sin upon himself and he paid for it in full with his blood shed on the cross and then he credits us with his righteousness forever he's prepared a feast in heaven for us and he calls us to come and all we have to do is respond by believing believing in Jesus So if that's not you, then answer the invitation even today. Come to the feast. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and enjoy the feast. Now before I move on, let me just take a quick moment to speak specifically to our covenant children here in the church family. You've been baptized. You've been brought into this visible church family. You've been given incredible spiritual blessings. You have wonderful families that are teaching you. About God's Word, that are teaching you about who God is, that are teaching you about the gospel of God's grace and mercy. You're growing up learning, uh, you are learning about this heavenly feast that awaits all of God's people in heaven. But you need to know that there has to be a time when you too say, I want to go to that feast. When you say, Having a relationship with Jesus Christ is not just something that I've been taught. It's not just something that my family said that I should do. This is something that I really want. This is something that I want for myself. There has to come a time when you admit that you are a sinner and you need a Savior whose name is Jesus. There has to come a time when you share that truth, when you share your desire When you share your faith with your elders and become a full member of this church and enjoy the Lord's Supper together. So if you haven't done that yet, Covenant Children, but you think that you might be getting ready to do that, I want to encourage you to be talking with your parents. Talk with your pastors. Pastor Steve's even going to be doing a class for people who want to get ready to do that, probably this fall. We have to come to the banquet. A second takeaway for us today. We need to participate in the Great Commission. Just as the host in the parable sent his servant out into the city and beyond to take the invitation to the feast to the people, so too Jesus sends out his people as his servants to take the invitation of the gospel to the world. That's the mission of the church, that we would make disciples of the nations. The Lord gives every single one of His people a part to play in that mission. And so the question we have to ask ourselves is, what's the part that I get to play in God's work of accomplishing His mission of making disciples of the nations? Maybe it's through using the Word and your actions that you would be ready and looking for opportunities to tell others about the hope that you have in Christ. What are you doing on your street what are you doing in your neighborhood? How are you interacting with your classmates? With your coworkers, With people who serve you at restaurants and gas stations and grocery stores? Maybe someone needs to go on a short-term missions trip somewhere. Or go out with our Crow Creek team in August. Maybe going overseas with Mission to the World or going on a medical missions trip. Maybe your part to play is helping to provide funds for others who are going on those kinds of trips, serving missionaries in other places of the world. Certainly all of our parts to play is to pray regularly for the missionaries and the ministries that that, that are serving to fulfill the mission of making disciples. We're called to participate in this great commission, this great mission of what God is doing. And there are lots of different ways to participate. The question you ask yourself is, what is God calling me to do in this incredible work that he's doing? Thirdly, third takeaway, and lastly, we do need to come to the feast and we need to participate in the great commission, but we also need to count the cost of being a follower of Jesus. In 1997, NASA had a successful trip to Mars. The Mars Pathfinder Lander landed on the planet. And so NASA decided that they would have a series of scientific missions to Mars and they would launch one every two years. And the motto that they had for this new campaign was Faster, Better, Cheaper. (laughs) Things didn't go quite as planned. December of 1999, the Mars Polar Lander was scheduled to land on the planet, but it failed to slow down on its descent to the planet and smashed into the planet and broke into thousands of pieces. As they assessed what had happened, it was determined that there was a design flaw in this $165 million spacecraft. The engineers determined that the flaw could have been detected It was a flaw in the braking system not working like it was supposed to. Then engineers said this flaw could have been detected. It could have been prevented early if we had just had the right simulation software on our computers. The problem was that NASA had tried to cut costs and decided not to buy that software for their engineer computers. So they accomplished the goal of doing the mission cheaper, but certainly not better. The mission failed because NASA didn't count the cost of what a successful Mars landing would be. I want you to notice that it's not a coincidence that immediately after this parable in Luke chapter 14, we have a section where Jesus is taking time to tell people that there is a cost of following him. Do you see that in verses 25 and following? In fact, Jesus used two illustrations in this section here. To tell the people that they needed to count the cost. Look at verse 28. He says, For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or, what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he, will, he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. Jesus is saying that if you want to be his disciple, if you want to follow him, if you want to go to the feast, there's a cost involved. Now the invitation to the feast is clear and it's widespread. And the feast is incredible. But Jesus says to come to the feast has some consequences. The banquet, the feast, the party, it's free. But there are consequences for going. So what are some of those consequences? What's the cost that that we need to consider as we follow Jesus? Well, he mentions one in verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now that is a pretty dramatic statement. And Jesus, obviously knowing all things, made use of all kinds of different ways of language. And here's a good example of Jesus using some hyperbole to underscore his point. Now, how do we know that? How do we know that Jesus isn't saying literally that you have to hate all of those people and even hate yourself in order to be his disciple? Well, Matthew's account of this same part of the gospel in Matthew chapter 10 records it this way. Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. This is what Jesus is saying. To go to the feast, to be in a relationship with Jesus, means complete devotion to Him above everything else in life. It is to love and to follow Jesus more than anything else in our lives. That means that we are to love Jesus more than even our family. That we are to love and serve Jesus more than our vocation, more than our freedom, more than our money, more than our reputation, more than our comfort. Those things are all wonderful things, but they cannot be the ultimate things for us. We cannot love those things more than we love the Lord Jesus. Now you can know that you're loving something more than Jesus when you ask yourself this question. If I can't have this thing or that thing or this person, then my life isn't worth living. That if I, if I lost this thing, if I lost this person, my life would be utterly destroyed and have no meaning. If, if you can put things into that sentence there's a good chance that you are loving those things more than you are loving Jesus. If anything in life becomes an ultimate thing for us, more than Jesus is, then notice what Jesus says, we are not worthy of Him. It's a strong statement. So if we find ourselves in that place, we need to repent and take whatever has our love and our commitment more than Jesus and put it back into its proper place. Those are things that can bring us joy and they're treasures to us. But we don't enjoy them or treasure them more than Jesus. So the first thing that we need to do is we count the cost of being a follower of Jesus as we think about the consequences of coming to the feast as we need to remember that our complete devotion must go to Jesus Christ above all else. A second thing Jesus mentions here about what it means to to be a follower of Jesus and the cost that it is to us is in verse 27. Verse 27 says this, Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now what did Jesus mean by this? Is He saying that all of us have to aspire to be crucified on a cross like He was? That we had carried His cross to... Helgotha, and he was hung on that cross, is that what he's saying? Of course that's not what he's saying. The Greek word that Jesus uses here certainly refers to a literal cross, wood beams that would be put into the ground to hang bodies on to die. But it had another sense as well. It had the sense of suffering and having hardships because of loving Jesus. Suffering and hardships that Christians have because they serve Jesus in this life. So Jesus is saying that to come to the feast, to be His follower, it's going to cost us something. In this life, we're going to have hardships, and we're going to have trouble, and we're going to have suffering, and we're going to have persecution, and we're going to have accusations, and we're going to have alienation, because we love and serve Jesus. And sometimes, we'll even have... Burdens in our lives that are not specifically related to being a Christian, just being a part of this fallen world. Physical and mental disabilities, relational tension and discord. Whatever our burdens, whatever our hardships, whatever our suffering, whatever our crosses, Jesus says we are called to bear them. We are called to bear them and to follow him. That means that we need to come together as a church family to help each other carry the burdens that we've been given to carry. It means humbling ourselves and being willing to enter into the pain that our brothers and sisters in Christ are experiencing. It means not putting our ultimate hope and the right political party or political person to make all of our crosses go away. It means not despairing of all hope in the midst of suffering. Nothing that we experience in this life can take anything away from the feast that awaits us. In fact, there's reason to believe that the hardships and the suffering and the crosses that we endure in this life are actually preparing us in a spiritual and supernatural way for the feast that is waiting for us. So Jesus says, count the cost of being his disciple. Count the cost of following him. Carry your cross. One last cost that Jesus tells us here in this next section is in verse 33, that we are to cast off all distractions. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple again Jesus is using hyperbole here he's not saying we have to renounce and give away everything that we have his point was is that if there's anything in our life that distracts us from loving and following and obeying Jesus we need to cast it off we need to renounce it but he means anything anything in this life that would keep us from loving and obeying Jesus it could be a career it could be a boyfriend or a girlfriend it could be living the american dream Things that we enjoy, if there's anything that causes us, distracts us from loving and serving the Lord, we are to renounce it and to cast it off. What distracts you from loving and serving Jesus? Root it out and cast it off. So this parable tells us that the Lord has prepared a great banquet and feast for us. The invitation has gone out and the feast is free. And the feast will satisfy us completely and forever. We're supposed to think about how are we we in this parable? Where, Where do we see ourselves? How does this apply to us? Well, if you're not a follower of the Lord Jesus, it means you need to come to the banquet. You need to answer the invitation. Put your faith in Christ and come to the feast. For all of us, it means that we need to participate in the Great Commission to make sure that the invitation goes out. And for all of us, it means that we should count the cost to remember the consequences of going to the feast. We need to be completely devoted to our Savior, loving Him more than anything else in this life. And whatever whatever cross, whatever hardship, whatever suffering He calls us to carry, we should carry it in faithfulness. And we need to cast off and renounce and root out anything that distracts us from loving and obeying the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, as with so many of the parables, there are hard things for us today in this story. Certainly would have been true for the first people that were hearing Jesus tell this parable. But it's true for us as well. So I pray for for all of us, Father, that you would help us to struggle and wrestle with the truth of your word. And that through the Spirit's empowering us, we we would be enabled uh, to believe what you say in your word and to actually be changed by it. Help us, Father, this week ahead to love you and to serve you and to be faithful to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.